Today, some of our best segments from the global lane. Christians aren't the only ones expecting to suffer as the Taliban solidifies control over Afghanistan. Gains made for females during the past 20 years in education and employment are already being reversed. What does the future portend for Afghan women and girls? Well, here with more is Jennifer Stefano. Ms. Stefano is a Republican strategist and a fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. She's also vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. You hear a lot from the Biden administration about equity for transgenders, for women in American society. But with a sudden takeover of Afghanistan, we're not hearing much about protecting the rights of women there. Why is Washington silent on that? Well, that's right. It seems as though um, women only matter every four years or when the left is using us as a political pawn against um, their someone they disagree with, say, like Brett Kavanaugh. All of a sudden, women and what we have to say matters. In this instance in Afghanistan, our president has failed to honor his commitments. He has failed to live up to the standard he says that he is going to help and take care of women. And now you see the devastation this is going to take on the 18 million Afghan women and girls uh, that once lived under our aegis, that lived free because of the Americans, are now going to become victims because of the decision of the Biden administration. And sadly, even our own president in the United States is not showing the care and concern for women and girls. And by the way, where is our female vice president? This was supposed to be some watershed moment for women and girls around the world. She's the most, ostensibly the most powerful woman in the world. Where is she? What is, where, where is her words? Where are her actions? Where, where is she to, to advocate on women's behalf? She's not there. Let's talk some specifics here and remind people who don't remember from 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. I do because I've covered it for 40 years, Afghanistan. Shabana Basij Rasik, the founder of a girls' school in Afghanistan, along with 250 students and staff, have fled the country. And Ms. Rasik remembers how she was treated by the Taliban 25 years ago when she was a young school-age girl. So to protect her students, she destroyed all the records identifying them. So what would likely have happened to these girls and others if she hadn't done that? What does the future hold for them, female students in Afghanistan? As we as Americans understand the future, there is not one for these women and girls. If you see the headlines today, the Taliban is saying women should stay inside, girls should stay inside, that the soldiers are not, quote, trained um, to respect or treat women well. And, and let's be really clear, if we're looking at the history of the Taliban and, and we, we really can't look at anything else, um, this is not going to change. Things are not going to get better for these women. And the women, the average age of women in Afghanistan is 19 and a half years old. These are young girls. They lived almost all their lives under the aegis of the United States. They, they lived free. They were being educated. And all that, all that is being taken from them because of President Biden's failure to plan, to think of what would happen to these women, to have in any way adequately, adequately prepared our nation or the Afghans for what he was about to do. This is one of the greatest and most catastrophic military maneuvers in the modern era. I, I honestly can't think of one. It, it, it makes Dunkirk look successful. And last fall, Afghanistan was given a seat on the UN Commission on the Status of Women. The term starts this year. It ends in four years. Should that decision be reversed? What do you think? 
Look, I, I do not take seriously uh, the Human Rights Watch and others that come out from the United Nations. In, in 2020, they issued a report on the United States that um, accused the Trump administration of, of human rights abuses on uh, due to our foreign policy, due to the fact that we were that he was um, meeting with North Korea and South Korea at the same time. Um, and, and continued to point out policies that actually brought about uh, greater peace and brought about calm and stability in the world, whether you liked it or not, as to where today um, we're seeing a catastrophe unfold. And where was the Human Rights Watch um, before this happened? Why aren't we really addressing human rights abuses um, of, on groups like the Taliban? Why aren't we they more vigorous on that or putting on equal footing a country like the United States just because they don't agree with the administration and, and pretending somehow that the Trump administration was harmful to women or girls because they don't like our health care policies. Okay, Jennifer Stefano, Republican strategist, fellow of the Independent Women's Forum, thank you for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Sexual predators are ready to pounce on your children or grandchildren. And instead of posing a danger in the neighborhood, some may already reside right in your home. Online gaming, texting, and chatting are placing children at risk. And the threat has worsened since the start of the COVID pandemic. Here's CBN News reporter Caitlin Burke. Parents usually feel that kids living under their roof enjoy a layer of protection. But if they can get online, then danger could just be a few clicks away. We checked out a popular gaming platform to get a clearer picture of what kids are encountering. Within minutes, we found a publicly available chat that included explicit language. Ew! And even avatar pornography. We can't even show this. Unfortunately, wherever children are, predators are lurking. So when you have kids on social media or video games, particularly when there's an interactive element, absolutely, you're going to find predators there. Big tech is not designed for children, and they know that, and they're taking advantage of that. In the summer of 2020, FBI analyst Chris Travis noticed a trend in several child exploitation cases. These perpetrators were using online gaming platforms to open communication with children, so to identify basically their, their targets, to start communication with them, begin that grooming process, and then move them over to other applications where they ha they can then have video and uh, picture sharing capability. Once on a social media app, the suspect would push the child to send photos, getting increasingly aggressive. They'll say, hey, you have to keep sending me pictures or videos, and if you don't, I will post the pictures that you did send me. I'll post them on your Facebook account, or I'll link it to your Discord, or I'll send it to your parents. Our kids in this country who are sex trafficked, Right? This is the number one way it happens. It is a meet online. It is a, you know, it's a runaway. It's convincing somebody to leave. It is not taken. It is not, you know, the white van pulls up, scoops the kid up and grabs them and, and puts them in a dungeon. It, it is kids voluntarily leaving, not realizing what they're going into. Chris McKenna, founder of Protect Young Eyes, says building a strong relationship with your child is one of the best forms of protection. It has to start relationally. And that's by doing technology with them. That's what we call co-play. It's copy me, modeling, right? It's being curious instead of condemning. It's having conversations about everything and probably two years before you want to. And then it's having a posture of coaching instead of controlling. 
All of the experts we spoke with stressed not to attempt banning your child from the internet. For one, it's just not realistic. Instead, take more control over what they can access in order to prevent unwanted access to them. So what else can parents and grandparents do to protect kids from online sexual predators? Well, joining us is Matt Gore. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Operations at Canopy, a digital parenting app. Matt, thanks for being with us, and I want to discuss how your app helps. But first, you wrote an op-ed for The Washington Times, and you mentioned that a recent survey shows 15% of 8-year-old girls have been exposed to sexting. Eight-year-old girls. <laughs> wow. What, what's happening and why? It's really, it's really amazing what's happening out there. And I think a lot of parents would find it shocking. The new normal is that if you are a kid, especially a, a, a girl online, the chance of you being asked for nude images has never been higher. It's not just girls getting trapped into this. Predators are also luring boys. Tell us about that, because we always think of girls being mostly at risk, but it isn't just girls. That's right. Uh, one in seven kids, according to one survey, had sent an inappropriate text message, and one in four had received one. Now, those numbers are actually from 2018. In the first few weeks of the pandemic, when everyone's social lives went online, Google searches for how to sext actually tripled. So I think the problem is actually much, much larger than it was previously. You know, this is very disturbing. I, I mean, thinking uh, an eight-year-old girl, they don't even know what sex is. Where, where are they getting all this from, man? The truth is that um, the Internet's full of, of predators and that parents really need to be thoughtful about how they parent their children online. So it used to be people used to think of the Internet sort of like the TV, that there is some kind of censorship, at, at least something going on, so that parents could feel safe leaving their kid in front of a computer and letting that do the babysitting. That is no longer the case. Now there's all kinds of inappropriate content on the, on the web, and parents need to be really thoughtful about how they can parent digitally and not just parent in the real world. And I know many parents mean well because they want their child to have a phone. If they're at a neighbor's or alone or something, they, they want to make sure they can call right away, they can be in contact with them. But uh, your company, Canopy, I understand has some software, an app that may help. Tell us how it works. One of the most important things we do is that we can actually help prevent sexting. Just like you said earlier, there are especially young kids don't really understand what's going on. And they may be asked to send a photo of themselves to a stranger on the online. What Canopy can do is actually find any inappropriate images taken on a device and flag them. It'll ask the child, are you sure you meant to take that? Why don't you run it by your parent just to make sure that you're safe? So what Canopy does is it is an app that really empowers parents to have great conversations with their kids and make sure that they're safe so that predators and other people can't take advantage of kids. So you say it may be a bit awkward, but... Ultimately, parents need to talk with their children, and it begins at a time when those kids are given phones, tablets, with outside access. So why is that important to talk with your kids about it? We think that every parent should actively set up healthy boundaries on the, on the Internet, right? So they should use a digital, an Internet filter like Canopy um, to make sure that their kids have safeguards. But also, at the end of the day, it's really about parenting. It's really about parents having hard conversations with their kids, even before, before it feels natural, right? Parents need to be having conversations with their kid 
about inappropriate about inappropriate content and inappropriate uh, interactions online as soon as they give the child a device. I see parents uh, giving them iPads to two and three year olds, uh, playing games on them, and and so forth. And let's hope they're not online and exposed to that kind of thing. Parents really need to be aware, do they not? And and monitor what their kids are doing. I mean, there's just nothing that can replace a parent. Right. And I think, man, I, I really have so much sympathy for what parents are going through right now, because, look, you can always look to um, our parents when we think about how to navigate things like getting your first car, because there were cars around when we were that age. But now this is the first generation of parents who has ever had to deal with um, raising children online. So it's a it's a real it's a real challenge. And that's why Canopy tries to create tools to really empower parents to make great decisions. But also, at the end of the day, parents need to be super involved. And we think that there's just nothing that can replace the magic of a parent having a great conversation and really working on the heart of their child. Back to school while the pandemic lingers. As American students return to their classrooms, teachers may likely discover that many suffer from depression, thoughts of suicide or anxiety. Just how bad is it? What can parents and teachers do? We're here to provide some insights as Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is founder and CEO of Amen Clinics and author of the book, Your Brain is Always Listening. That's his latest. Dr. Amen, it's good to have you with us. So how would you describe the mental health of America's young people right now? I'm thinking school-aged children here getting better, worse? Why? Oh, no, it's dramatically worse. Brand new study came out showing that depression has doubled that one out of four children are struggling with depression, and one out of five children is struggling with an anxiety disorder. It was already at epidemic highs uh, before the pandemic, but has just taken it to another level. The fear, the isolation, the social unrest, the political divide, all of these things, not to mention social media and um, the stress in their families has just caused many children to really struggle emotionally. And on top of that, all of that, uh, now in many places, students returning to the classrooms uh, and the, their schools requiring them to wear masks. If schools don't have enough clicks as it is, now there are concerns from some people that we're creating snitches. You know, I'm better than you because I'm wearing a mask and you're not. Or snitches, you're not wearing a mask. Teacher, what effect do masks have on learning, social uh, socialization, and mental health? Well, it's a double-edged sword. Um, masks, in one way, honor the fact that we're in a pandemic and that I'm not going to give my virus to you or the germs. I mean, you just have to take a microbiology class in medical school to realize, I mean, germs really do get passed from person to person. On the other hand, masks prevent us from reading social cues that you, you don't get someone's whole face and our genes are programmed to see people wearing masks as bad guys, as, as trouble. So it's it's a double-edged sword. Yes, I, when you and I were younger, the bad guys wore the masks. Uh, someone going in to rob a bank or something like that. Now it's okay to go into a bank with a mask. 
Government officials, politicians say vaccination is the best way to protect our physical health from COVID-19. But how about our mental health as this pandemic lingers? Many people say they're just about over it. So in your book, I know you talk about things that steal our joy and contentment. So what can we do to get that back? Well, I mean, the first thing we should do is we should teach children good mental hygiene. Uh, mental health habits. Uh, schools are not good places to teach kids how to manage their mind. Can you believe we got out of school and no one ever taught us not to believe every stupid thing we think? So mental discipline, and I wrote this at the beginning of the pandemic, mental hygiene is just as important as washing your hands. Whenever you feel sad, or mad or nervous or out of control, write down what you're thinking and ask yourself whether or not it's true, if you absolutely know that that's true. So learning to direct your mind in a healthy way, in a positive way, is just so helpful that no one ever taught us. I was like 28 years old before someone ever told me, you know, you really don't have to believe every stupid thing you think. Okay, Dr. Daniel Amen, founder and CEO of Amen Clinics, author of the book, Your Brain is Always Listening. Thank you for sharing your time and expertise. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gary. Although 52% of Americans say they want less government, the Biden vaccine mandate is moving forward. There's no backing off for this president and Democratic Party leaders. And just like with the southern border, Afghanistan, energy, and supply chain shortages, we're now heading for another crisis. You see, millions of Americans could face real hardship. Airline pilots, medical personnel, police officers, simply because they don't agree with the government mandate. In Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is taking on the police. Lightfoot has ordered that they be suspended without pay if they fail to report their vaccination status. Whatever happened to health privacy rights? I guess they don't apply for the men and women in blue who risk their lives every day protecting the people of the Windy City. And what about religious exemptions? Governments and businesses are learning they must take them seriously. They cannot disregard religious freedom. The U.S. Sixth Court of Appeals recently defended the right of athletes to play sports at Western Michigan University after the university denied their religious exemption requests. In a unanimous decision, the court ruled that WMU violated the First Amendment rights of the collegiate athletes. Folks, don't you see that in the name of public health, the vaccination requirement is actually denying Americans their God-given rights and placing the security and economic well-being of our nation at risk? America is supposed to be the land of the free. You cannot instill confidence and trust in the vaccine and in government when you force people to choose between taking it or losing their livelihood. That's not the American way. That's tyranny. Is American Christianity in decline? A new survey of born-again Christian adults between the ages of 18 and 39 found that 60% believe Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. Probe Ministries reports the Christian young adults believe Buddha and Muhammad also offer valid paths to salvation. And get this, more than 30%, now these are born-again Christians, 30% say Jesus sinned like we do, or they aren't quite sure if he did or not. Folks, this means two things. Number one, millennials and Gen Zers don't really understand the foundations of the Christian faith. 
Only Jesus, not Buddha or Mohammed, said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No person comes to the Father except by me. Also, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And number two, American churches are doing a poor job of discipling people below the age of 40. Did you know that 50 to 80% of teens raised in the church will walk away by the time they reach age of 29? There is hope. We can revive the Christian faith in America, but it'll mean rolling up our sleeves, getting to work through mentorship and prayer. Nearly half of all American adults say they pray every day. Two-thirds say they pray at least once a week. So why not begin with prayer? More churches are joining a movement called the Pray For Me campaign, started by the executive director of the Chattanooga, Tennessee Youth Network. Tony Souter saw a need to build intergenerational relationships within the body of Christ. He recently told the Christian Post, quote, young people need to experience that the body of Christ is a family, not just an institution. It's a simple task for churches all they have to do is hold an event where each student asks three adult Christians from different generations to be his or her prayer champions, praying for them throughout the school year. Listen to Tony Souter. I say I'm a 15-year-old, and, and, but then I have a 30-year-old that's praying for me that I've invited, a 50-year-old that's praying for me, and a 75-year-old that's praying for me. What's happening here? Well, it's not just the intergenerational relationships with them and me. It's the intergenerational relationships with each other. That all of a sudden we've created a setting where a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, and a 75-year-old are on mission together. Yes, on mission to pray and get involved in the lives of others. 650 churches from various denominations have joined the Pray For Me movement since it started seven years ago. They've created more than 150,000 intergenerational relationships. So take heart. Through prayer and by building relationships, you can help strengthen the body of Christ. You can make a difference in people's lives, not only for today, but for eternity. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.